Born and raised in Haiti, John Wiener has worked on coastal and marine issues since 1991. In 1992, John founded Haiti's first coastal and marine environmental nonprofit called the Foundation for the Protection of Marine Biodiversity. He is the current head of the organization today, and he specializes in coastal and marine sciences, environmental monitoring and management, and community development, and has executed a wide range of projects, including resource assessments, association building, environmental rehabilitation, community needs evaluations, as well as pure scientific research for institutions like the Ministry of Environment of Haiti and the UN. He's Haiti's most awarded environmentalist and a recipient of the Goldman Environmental Prize for Islands and Island Nations. Jean Wiener, welcome to the One Planet podcast. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. You're founder of the Foundation for the Protection of Marine Biodiversity in uh, Haiti. And I was wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about your journey when you were growing up in Haiti as a young boy and just enjoying the 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 beautiful country did you imagine that you would be founding such an organization or how did you come alive to that passion being born and raised in haiti i always had an affinity for the ocean we uh, my family always took us out to the ocean um almost every weekend so we were either up north of port-au-prince or down south of port-au-prince and down south in particular uh we had um, some distant cousins who were always with us um, out in the ocean. So we would go into the water once we arrived. We were talking about being eight, nine, ten years old and spend the entire day uh, floating around in the water, face down. Uh, would come out looking like prunes you know, in the water for so long. And there was one reef in particular, which uh, we were at all the time, which was just offshore. Had eel, it had lots of coral, had lots of fish, and it was just something I was always very, very interested in and amazed at because not, not very many people got to see what I was looking at. So thinking that I would be a marine biologist one day was not too far-fetched. It was something that we, me and my cousins, uh, were very interested in. We bought the first, you know, Jacques Cousteau masks and fills and things like that once they became available in Haiti. And um, they went off to do other things, of course. But for me, my interest in biology and the marine environment remained. So I followed that. I pursued that through university and then back to Haiti to see how I could help. Because one of the things I noticed on that reef was that every time we would go, even in the over the course of a week, the fish population would get smaller and smaller. There was one particular school of yellowtail snapper, which every time we went would get smaller and smaller. It, it started out at over a hundred and within a couple of years was no longer there. So that really kind of set me on the path that I've taken to this day. Yeah. But since you have been, um, at the head of uh, your foundation for, oh, how many years? It's like 30 years, almost 30 years. For 30 years now. Yes, 30 years. Bon anniversaire. <laughs> and so, and, uh, yeah, so <laughs> what's, what have you, you know, what you've achieved in that period where, you know, the regrowth of mangroves, you know, protecting the coral reefs. What, you know, what are you proud of in terms of your achievements, you know, as you look, go back in the decades? It's really, really 
bizarre at times because I'm often asked for pictures for various things that we've done by various organizations. And when I go back and look through the tens of thousands of pictures that we've taken over the decades, sometimes I'm, I'm baffled by how much we've done. And I also realize, oh, this is probably why I'm so tired all the time because we have done so much. But uh, some of our greatest accomplishments, I think, include um, all the mangrove areas that we've replanted. We've replanted over a million trees throughout Haiti. Uh, the development of new laws for fisheries and protecting uh, the fisheries resources. Educational materials that we've developed uh, that, that tends close to 100 uh, fishing associations that we've helped strengthen and provide guidance to on how to, how to perfect the fishing methods, as well as just in general, bringing the importance of monitoring and managing our coastal marine resources better to the forefront of environmental issues in Haiti. Uh, I'm not bragging or anything, but I really think that before uh, the foundation started, the coastal marine environment in Haiti was pretty much fairly well neglected. Uh, there was no organization monitoring or managing or trying to uh, monitor or manage the country's resources. And that's partly why I got involved in it. Well, one, wanting to do biology, loving the ocean, it was kind of a perfect fit. So being able to kind of brought that to the forefront, I think is, is probably one of our, our greatest achievements. Yes, and you highlighted something there, which is educating. You're an educator. You're, you're training people. You can't just take a, you can't just say you have to tell people who are in generations going back, fishermen, that they must fish more holistically and they, they can't just abandon their livelihood. So you're really giving people the tools to uh, be part of this holistic management of the marine ecosystems. Right. It's, it's, um, it's an interesting progression because when we first started the foundation, the idea was to pretty much just do simple research. We were starting off as a research institution and that's all we, we really wanted to do. As time progressed, of course, you realize, um, your naivety perhaps at first, that if you really want to do things to help protect the environment, you have to include the local stakeholders, the local people. And then, of course, from the local people, you have to begin to implicate the local community groups. And then from there, the community groups, they link you to government authorities who are responsible for monitoring or making sure that all resources are protected. So in the end, if you want, as you said, a holistic approach, you have to follow that entire line and be able to encompass everything related to, to the coast and resources. And Lawson say, um, you know, there are no hungry conservationists. Meaning, of course, if you're, if you're hungry, the last thing on your mind is going to be conserving or preserve resources. Um, so it's, it's very difficult at times to see certain people come in who really don't understand the situation and start yelling at the fishermen and telling them, you can't catch this lobster because it's too small. Or you have to stop cutting down the mangroves because you're damaging the ecosystem. When their stomachs are full, 
Uh, so it's, it's very difficult to, to get that idea across. And it's not only a question of getting it across to local stakeholders, but people who should know better as well should know that, you know, if you're hungry, you're going to do anything that you need to do to feed yourself, feed your family and provide for it. So our then holistic approach is not only telling people and educating people what is necessary to help preserve, monitor, manage their resources so that not only they, but their children will find who wants to, to survive off of, but also providing alternatives. So we've started um, breadfruit flower and apiculture and ecotourism and trying to find ways to sustainably use the resources in the area to provide income, additional income to local people so that they can eat some of the, uh, remove some of the pressure on the resources that are already being overextended. I think your um, description of a holistic approach is incredibly unique and important for Haiti, a country that's been ridden with poverty and political instability. And I'm curious about how you convince all of these massive sustainability unions and organizations to support your organization. And I guess my question is, in what ways have you, would you like to see the sustainability movement kind of adopt a holistic approach? And have you seen challenges in convincing these organizations um, that a holistic approach is the best framework to approach resource conservation? A uh, great question, and it actually hasn't been terribly hard. I think there is now a turn towards a more holistic approach to resource management. Well, uh, the realization, as I said, that, you know, you can't just tell people to stop doing something. Everybody has to make a living. Everybody has you know, kids to feed, kids to send to, to school, doctors, bills. So you can't just arrive somewhere and say, okay, we're not going to let you do this anymore. So it's, I think we've, we've managed, um, at least in Haiti, and I've seen it also with other friends in other countries working on different issues over the past uh, decade, decade and a half or so, that turned towards, okay, we can't just concentrate on one aspect. We need to really get a hold of several of these components and really work towards, towards a, a holistic approach, getting people to protect their resources while managing, while managing. Well, a recent letter I wrote, an open letter I wrote to the IUCN, uh, the World Conservation Congress, which just took place, um, was along those lines as well. In that, in many cases, uh, talking about biodiversity, for example, is fine and dandy if you understand what biodiversity is and all of its intricacies. But if you really want to discuss protecting resources in countries in which the resources are overexploited or they're mismanaged, you really have to start talking about the human factor and how humans are impacting the resources. Um, you can't just go in and say, stop doing this and that. You have to understand that well, food security can lead you to protecting your, and lead you to protect your biodiversity. If you say, you know, if you want to protect the yellowtail snapper, well, so that you can always find it, 
protecting that and finding ways to manage that will help protect other resources as well. And you will always have plenty of resources. Hopefully that's, that's the goal for everyone. If you, for example, on the Caribbean reefs, if you protect, uh, parrotfish, well, from overexploitation, algae that are overrunning reefs and destroying reefs will be managed. And you have, you have, of course, everything is linked. So if you can protect what you can, it may help many, many other species and ecosystems and ecosystem services down the line. So everything is linked, but staying a little too high up and discussing biodiversity, biodiversity, biodiversity is sometimes you know, very often way above the heads of, of most of the people who actually exploiting the resources or who even need to manage the resources. So what are some of the unique challenges that might make the situation in Haiti um, more, more difficult to enact change? Uh, well, as you know, uh, particularly now, Haiti's going through an extremely difficult period. Uh, it's, it's very difficult to say that uh, the situation that we're going through politically uh, highly impacts the overexploitation of the resources because many parts of the country where this is going on, I'm talking about the exploitation of resources, there's very little government presence to begin with. So you really need to concentrate on the local communities anyway. It does impact our work because, of course, we can't travel to our work sites. We have trouble getting here and there and around the country because of all the insecurity. But in general, um, you know, lo local coastal communities are, for all intents and purposes, pretty much on the road. So getting to these communities and working with, uh, with the local the local people, of course, is critical. Uh, we try to work with the local people as much as possible because that gives them a sense of, of uh, ownership. For the projects, if we do mangrove restoration or agriculture or along those lines, it has to be, of course, with the local communities. All beach cleanups, street cleanups, mangrove reforestation, um, renting of boats, all, anything along those lines, which can provide a benefit to the local communities, even if it's short-term jobs or anything along those lines, the local community has to feel that it's participating in order to have ownership. So if you have, you know, a hundred people from the local community participating in a mangrove restoration or reforestation project, making biodegradable baskets out of bamboo, helping set up the plant nursery, watering the plants, checking them for, for bugs and, and insects, all then participating in their replanting in their own community then there's a sense that the trees belong to them. The trees belong to their community. And hopefully in large part, they will defend the trees from others who may want to come in and cut them down. And through educational activities also, you hopefully also help them understand the importance of monitoring and protecting their local resources. So it's really a question of getting those who are most involved, implicated in, in the activities. You will never, let it know about other countries, but in Haiti, never succeed 
if you, for example, have a mangrove reforestation project and you bring it, um, you know, hundred people from a neighboring community, that will never work. They'll never allow it. And even if it does manage to, to happen there, the local community isn't going to take care of it. They're not going to watch it. They're not going to solve its growth and its development. Your description of local community engagement is really interesting. And I'm curious about how you, your organization connects with the youth. Obviously, youth populations and connecting with them, it's probably the most sustainable way to endure conservation efforts. Can you describe some of those education uh, initiatives you've taken with the youth? Of course. Um, one of the most important things is to get them out of the classroom. Get them out into the field, looking at fish, looking at mangroves, getting their feet muddy in the field, getting scratched as they walk through a forest or something like that. Um, a lot of this, a lot of the schooling system in Haiti, which again is very poor and, uh, could use a lot of help. Um, a lot of the issues with the schooling system, especially in terms of um, social responsibility, environmental responsibility is that they sit them in a classroom and nobody goes anywhere and nobody does anything and half the kids are asleep and nothing happens. So exciting them, go outside, sit on a beach and teach them, even teach them out, outdoors or teach them, uh, about the mangroves, teach them about the fishing, teach them about the environment. The excitement that they have of just being outdoors, the excitement of seeing new things, even if they've grown up in the community, you know, it's a fishing community, but you're able to show them things which they've never taken a closer look at and get their interest in that. Um, you know, go down to the beach and pick up some sargassum, which is just washed up on shore and explain to them, you know, this does this and the leaves do that and this kind of came from and all of that. Things, of course, which they, which they wouldn't get in the classroom. So engaging the children, of course, is extremely important. Um, of course, they don't have the financial responsibilities for the families, but you need to engage the parents, um, as well, but getting the children involved, uh, for us, it's all the way up, even to university level, we have, we, we try to work as much as we can with local universities, uh, but it's, it's critically important that you get out there and get your hands and your feet dirty and take a look and, and see what's going on. And just like with everything else, um, those who are really, really interested in it will stick with it and, and move forward. And those who aren't will find something else to do, but you'll never know who's who until you get them out there and get them dirty. Exactly. I, I believe that so much hands-on knowledge, uh, it's no longer an abstraction. It, it's, re it's not real until you can see it. And also, of course, yeah. the pride of whether it's a cleanup or helping, you know, planting when you can see what was a barren field, say, and or, you know, you know, or coastal area, and you can come back and see the improvements. Uh, it gives you energy. It feels great. Yeah, you know, it feels great. Seeing the successes are great. Now, failures, of course, but the successes often wake up. Yes, and for 
In the region, I mean, people, uh, I imagine many organizations have looked to, uh, to what you've done uh, in, with the incredible success and strength of your grassroots organization. Um, how have some other organizations uh, from the, the wider region, uh, you know, been modeled themselves perhaps on you or, you know, partnerships or are you happy to see some of their successes in terms of, uh, you know, how they've been able to progress? Um, I'm not quite sure who's, who's perhaps replicated some of our activities in other parts of the region. Uh, but uh, we do see similarities sometimes after things that we've done have become popular or in the news. Some replications sometimes pop up. In Haiti, though, in particular, we're often sought out for for our expertise in various um, environmental rehabilitation activities. So we are partnering with many organizations in Haiti. While we are trading others, some organizations like to keep all their information, all their knowledge to themselves. But for us, it's the exact opposite. We have so much to do that we can't possibly do it alone. And we are more than happy to share our knowledge, share our information with everyone and provide training to groups that want to do their own aquaculture or their own mangrove restoration. Because it's, it's globally absolutely overwhelming in Haiti as well, even in our own little pocket or our little country, it's just overwhelming the amount of work that needs to be done. So we're not there for our own benefit. We're there for the benefit, hopefully, of the country. And we hope that being able to train others and get others involved, get others excited about all of this, is also a critical part of what we need to do to get our, our country back on and you've discussed some of the, the hands-on elements, the local elements. How... Um... Do you harness uh, technology or what new technologies are you excited about, you know, in terms of being able to, to move forward? Like one reads about bioconcrete and different things that will help restore, you know, coral areas. We use a lot of uh, satellite imagery and GIS work because for the mangrove areas in particular, it's very difficult to get into a lot of the areas that we'd like to, to impact all the time to monitor and manage. So, uh, we use drones as well in part to monitor some of the work that we've done in part to see where there are potential violations. For example, people cutting drones out in like distant, distant areas where normally we'd never be able to see them or catch them during it. Um, or some of our technology is, I don't even know if you'd call it technology, but it works on um, being able to, to provide local jobs, for example, by having the local people um, make biodegradable plant pots on, instead of using the polyethylene, the, you know, the usual black polyethylene bags that everybody has, which um, enters the environment, causes pollution. You have issues with disposal and everything. Um, we use invasive bamboo. Uh, we pay local uh, individuals to make the baskets. So you're removing it and helping to remove an invasive species. You're paying local, so making local jobs. Uh, you're having them help you as, as well in plant nurseries. 
And then the plant pots go into the ground uh, with the mangroves to help them get a better start. And then they're biodegradable 100%. So they disappear. So keeping jobs in Haiti, the polyethylene bags aren't made in Haiti. The pollution would be made in Haiti if you use too many of them and, and you don't know where to dispose of them or anything. So technology doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, outer space and genetics and everything. It could just be simplifying a process so that it's beneficial to the local communities at every step along the way. And I think that in doing that, again, bring them alone and they help and they feel a sense of participation and a sense of ownership. As we've heard, Jean Wiener's approach to environmental conservation is holistic and community-focused. This portion of the podcast was my favorite because Wiener sheds light on the unique challenges of climate mitigation at the local level. Portions of the climate debate can be arbitrary, broad, and overly complicated, as they are unburdened by the immediate threat of food insecurity or political instability. While parsing through the technicalities of climate legislation or envisioning new technologies like carbon capture is necessary, Wiener emphasizes the importance of consistent grassroots on the ground work and personal responsibility. He takes us back to the basics and encourages the global community to consider coastal populations most affected by climate change. Haiti's situation is uniquely interesting in the climate debate. Considered the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, it's often cited as the most vulnerable to climate change in the Caribbean. Its poor infrastructure is readily exposed to natural disasters and overfishing, deforestation, and unsustainable agricultural practices have devastated the country's natural resources. Considering these challenges, Wiener emphasizes supporting basic human needs in conjunction with sustainability, offering practical solutions and alternative sources of income like biodegradable basket weaving, promoting ecotourism, renting boats, and helping set up mangrove nurseries creates the marriage between community, job creation, and sustainability. As Wiener puts it, the local community must feel like they are participating to have ownership. We should all harness this sense of place and purpose when reflecting on our own interactions with the environment. Time is running out to address climate change's existential threat. For these next decades, we must do everything in our power to avoid a 1.5 degrees Celsius increase in global temperature, or we face irreversible consequences. This urgency necessitates leaders like Jean Wiener, people who are willing to dedicate themselves to the good of the planet and the good of their country. Wiener asks us to reflect on the local before the regional, the national, and the global. Starting small and asking yourself how you want to leave a space captures a new, more thoughtful perspective on our relationship with each other and with our Earth. Now back to the interview. I understand that you're transitioning or um, encouraging transition from um, charcoal production. And I didn't realize what a demand or what are the usages for charcoal uh, globally. So what are some of the uh, alternatives? And um, you just talk, discuss that a little. Sure. One of the big issues in Haiti uh, over the past, I don't know, century or more has been deforestation. So a lot of the, a lot of the focus on deforestation in Haiti had been on the production of charcoal for fuel. The charcoal is used for generally for, for cooking. So it's used in households for cooking, although they may also use raw wood 
you know, just branches and, and stuff like that for, for, for cooking. So the focus on charcoal as the main driver of deforestation in Haiti has been at the forefront of most organizations or reforestation efforts in Haiti for years. We're trying to find an alternative to that. Um, most of the charcoal, of course, is produced, all the charcoal, and this is produced in all rural areas. But most of the use is in urban areas, of course, where most of the population is. So you're, we're finding uh, a lot of the issues, uh, a lot of deforestation issues in the mangrove areas because um, a lot of the other more useful trees have been cut down. But the mangroves are readily accessible. The wood is excellent for making charcoal, and it doesn't have any thorns. We have a lot of acacia trees on land in Haiti, which grow like weeds and which are also very good for charcoal production, but they're loaded with thorns, which makes handling, you know, very, very difficult. So for us, uh, finding an alternative such as propane or some other type of fuel source uh, more efficient stoves so that you use less charcoal um, when, when cooking. Those types of initiatives are incredibly important for us because, of course, it helps to protect the forests. However, in my discussions with uh, many of our, our donors, many, of our, many people interested in the environment in Haiti, we have come to the conclusion that although the charcoal production is, of course, very important in terms of overall driving the deforestation issues in Haiti, we feel that the larger issue of deforestation is feral goats and cows, which are left to roam free and which eat everything inside. So by our rapid, very rapid calculations, if a charcoal producer can cut down four 12 meter, if even trees in a week to make a few bags of charcoal, which is still a lot. Even four 12 meter trees would be a lot. Um, if he cuts down four trees in a week, but a goat can eat 2,000 saplings in a day, what do you think is the bigger issue? So we're pushing all of the, all of the big international donors and everyone, especially in Haiti, to try to bring that feral animal, especially the goats, issue under control. Because they, we feel that they are the main driver of the deforestation and environmental issues. I want to uh, shift to talking about working with the Haitian government. In your opinion piece, you described that it's incredibly difficult to convince a government that is prioritizing, you know, uh, preventing poverty or political instability to prioritize climate change. So what kind of strategies have you employed to persuade the Haitian government to focus on conservation? And how have you navigated through a complicated bureaucracy? In conversations we've had with other small environmental organizations, especially in the region, all uh, many, many years back, we've come to the conclusion that it's all about the dollars. You can talk about biodiversity, you can talk about the number of fish, you can talk about anything you want, but if you don't 
start saying we're losing $5 billion worth of resources a year. Um, we're, we're losing, you know, a hundred million dollars worth of, of tourism revenue a year because of the lack or the mismanagement of our biodiversity and our environment. The politicians' ears don't perk up. It's when you start talking about the money issues that, that that's where they really start to, to pay attention. So for us, it's been, um, it really an issue. Of, uh, for example, the green protected areas that Haiti has just developed. Our concept was basically, if you make it, they will come. For example, the Haitian government declares a protected area. The donors and those who are interested in seeing biodiversity, mom and, and, and uh, food security and all of those issues made better would come and support that type of initiative. So the idea is that you have to show, as the government of Haiti, you have to show that you have an interest first. So you have to declare this area important and in need of monitoring manage, and management first, and then people will come and, and help you. But you can't expect people to come and help you and say, well, we think from the outside that this area is important and should be protected. You really have to be able to do it yourself first. So that is what we, we primarily did. And we were able to convince the government that certain areas needed protection. So from that, resources then started flow. And from there, um, again, you can see that if you get the resources, that means the support, uh, you know, the government can hire people, the government can support different activities within these areas. And again, completely selfishly promote themselves as having done this. And, you know, we're providing jobs and we're creating a protected area and we're, you know, hiring people and things are all you know, these different kinds of activities, which is fine. We don't care who gets the credit for anything as long as the job is done. So, uh, as you mentioned. Uh, working with a government, which especially right now is in a particularly precarious position in terms of um, trying to maintain stability and security issues in the world. Um, as I mentioned a little earlier, we keep on working, whether they're there or not, whether they're supporting us or not, um, the, our activities on the ground continue. Um, we do have some consistent support from various people, such as, such as the directors of some of the protected areas who are, you know, will work with us con consistently, but higher up the chain, well, the, the interest slowly wanes. Uh, so, um, those who are most important to us, I think at this time are those who are like uh, the park directors and, and those who are working. We are working with more And in terms of renewable energy, I mean, I, what is the process uh, to moving towards creating infrastructures? Because it seems like you do have na a lot of uh, natural resources or possibilities for, you know, rooftop solar and things like this. Um, where's the needle on that at the moment? For us, it's not one of our uh, main, main points of focus, but for other organizations, it is, and it is really Solar power is a no-brainer, of course. 
for a country like Haiti, which has 360 days of sun a year, um, wind power in a lot of the, in a lot of parts of the country would also be more than, than feasible. Um, so we are all for it, um, but it's not one of our main, um, points of focus. We promote it as much as we can. Um, for example, the new industrial park up in the north east of Haiti, where we work mostly, um, when they were installing, um, bunker oil generators protested as much as we could saying that this was an area in which there's constant wind, wind farms would work well, solar would work well. We pushed a bit for that. And our latest word on that is that they're actually trying to expand the power capacity for the industrial park in that area with renewals. So whether or not we had influence on that, I would say, hope so, but we're not ready to take credit for it. But again, a lot of these newer, it's not new technology anymore. A lot of the renewable technology, all we think definitely has a role to play in Haiti. So it makes perfect sense then that we would go for, for renewables. You know, I was so moved that you, you won the, the Goldman or your organization, I should say, because I know that you're humble and you don't like to take credit, but um, you won the Goldman Environmental Prize, uh, which is so justified. And I was so moved, you know, to to watch your um, acceptance speech because I think, you know, when you, I, I don't know what it's like or what's going through your mind when you're on stage, but um, I get, maybe you look back at the years and you don't realize how much time you've put in mean, maybe taking time away from your own family to, to, to look after this planet, to look after your country. Um, you know, what were your thoughts, you know, as you received that on behalf of your organization? Well, just that, um, the recognition of course was beyond anything I ever expected, uh, primarily because it was, uh, never even on my radar that I would ever even be considered for something like that because that's not what I was doing it for. So, uh, receiving that was again, um, one of the greatest achievements for our organization and for me proudly so representing the organization. And also, um, we couldn't have done it without. The, uh, the thousands of people working with us in the field, supporting us. So yeah, it was, it was, uh, the realization at that point that, you know, Hey, someone out there was watching and does care. <laughs> so, oh yeah, they been the time away from the family and the time away from, from, you know, life in general, to be able to dedicate it to the country and seeing all the changes and hopefully being able to make changes, not only for the country, but hopefully wider impacts as well. It was something else. But it is uh, very uh, beautiful. You've, we saw uh, how much you care for your country and, and also for your family. So, you know, we're an educational initiative here too. And, uh, you know, just trying to pass on a bit of that passion and commitment um, and what's on our mind I guess we're going into COP26 and we're thinking all thinking about the future um, you know what 
what do you tell your children? You know, what, how do you prioritize the things to focus on? What do you want young people to know, preserve, and remember? Well, um, we're coming out of what hasn't largely been, hopefully coming out of what hasn't been, uh, one of the worst times on the planet for resource exploitation and waste and everything related to that waste of resources. So, uh, try to set the example, well, especially for my kids, recycling, trying to be reasonable about purchasing things about, you know, where things end up after you're done using them. Um, just in general, taking, being, being careful about what you do, what impacts there are down the line and Again, even for them already, uh, they're 18 and 20 now. What are you going to do to protect the planet or try to protect the planet for your kids? So um, already trying to put that mindset, set that mindset up for them. Uh, because it's very difficult for our generation to change. We're already kind of a bit older than you, I'm sure. But <laughs> it's already difficult for my generation to to change the way it's done things for so long. Um, but trying to at least bring that change, be responsible, be reasonable, and uh, think about the impacts from mine to transportation to the product itself to how you're going to use it. Do you really need it? All the way to or how is it going to be disposed of or recycled? So I think we've we've got them kind of in that mindset, although my son still loves the sports cars and, and stuff. But I think uh I think they they're they're going to be more reasonable than we Oh definitely. This generation uh generation Z, I guess they call it or generation Z is very smart and and very uh mindful you know um there's so much at stake and even though it's a struggle you know the commitment i don't you know the passion and the commitment does take its toll um you know what for you has made it worthwhile you know what do you love about haiti and the beauty and wonder of the natural world that makes all these hours years that you've spent um worth the journey well first and foremost of course it's home so seeing your home be vandalized, be polluted, or be mismanaged is something which I've, of course, never taken kindly to. So uh, I understand also that there are a lot of, Lord, a lot of issues in the country all related to poverty, first and foremost. Uh, mismanagement at government level, mismanagement at private sector level. Um, I mean, I don't think there's probably a serious issue that Haiti hasn't experienced. But it's, again, whole, and I want to make sure that my kids can still have something to go back to if they want to. And my, they can have something that they can see. And when I talk about, you know, the fish in the ocean and the sea turtles coming to nest and, and all of that, that they would at least have the option of being able to go out into the field 
and see it. So it's really a question of how do you want to live? How do you want to leave the planet? And for me, and Corey, as it sounds, it's always, you know, leave everywhere. You've been a little better than you found. Well, it's a serious uphill battle because of all the issues. Uh, but if everybody, again, just does their little part, you know, if you can't clean up in front of your house and that's all you can do, then do that. If you can convince two people uh, to monitor or to manage their resources better, then do that. So if everybody just does the little bits that they can, uh, I think we'll go a lot further than if we just say, okay, well, it's somebody else's problem or somebody else will do it. And uh, as they, this, the Creole saying, which I've used also in, in a golden was, uh, which means anything. For example, the, the direct translation is a horse which has too many masters dies attached to the pole because everybody else thinks that everybody else is taking care of it. But everybody has the responsibility to, to take care of their own little part. Well, so true. And we really uh, appreciate uh, your example because it energizes us and it gives us something to, to model on our own projects. So thank you, Jean-Louis Nair and the Foundation for the Protection of the Marine Biodiversity uh, for your passion and commitment and holistic approach to coastal and marine management and helping us understand the power of grassroots movement and how we might harness them to apply them to global governance. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for your dedication to the environment and the ecosystems we're dependent on and for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. One Planet Podcast is produced by the Creative Process. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Phoebe Browse with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Phoebe Rouse. The music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. And if you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be a part of Climate Change Solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.